welcome to episode two of We Don't Talk About P-Word. In this episode, we continue a theme that I highlighted in episode one, American values. What are they? Who determined them? Where do they come from? Why have I never heard about them before? I'm referring to the 322 words, and of those, only 162 were needed, that define American values. These less than 500 words separated the United States from every other nation of the time. Most people can't even write a convincing essay in 500 words. Our founding fathers defined the values of the greatest nation in less. I am referring to the preambles, the opening statements of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. For as long as the United States has existed, our political elites have fed us a lie. They have told us that the preamble of the Constitution bestows no rights on Americans. This is according to our politicians and politically appointed judges. They claim that all the preambles do is introduce their respective documents. Based on my own study, I conclude they are wrong. Even worse, they have perpetuated this political propaganda for 246 years. Propaganda they spread to keep working Americans from even realizing it. Or worse, questioning it. But that's exactly what I'm asking you to do. I'm not asking you to blindly believe everything I say. I'm asking you to question what we've been told. Question the mouthpiece, question their motivation in spreading the propaganda, but most of all, I'm asking you to question whether there was and is a better way. But I'm not asking you to do it without context. Over the course of this and the next episode, I want to talk about the documents that launched our nation. I apologize in advance if this gets a little academic. We must discuss our nation's founding to understand what our founders envisioned. Most of us aren't taught or encouraged to explore the motivation behind these documents. I believe that is by design. We are provided the propaganda and nothing more. If you stay with me, you'll understand why I need to give everyone a little history reminder. I promise I'll try to make it as exciting as politics can be, and I'll try not to bore you too much. Let's start with the original, the OG document, the Declaration of Independence. We are all taught about the Declaration early in school. This is where our founding fathers told King George exactly where he could stick it. But this document did so much more. It solidified the alliance between the 13 colonies. It united 56 seditious men and all colonists in treason against the crown. This document said, we can govern ourselves better than the greatest power of the time. Win or lose, the Declaration of Independence ensured that all colonies and colonists were on the hook. But what did it say? Was it just a massive troll, or was there more? Before the 27 grievances listed against King George, there is a teaser trailer for a new nation. To try and cut down on confusion, I need to address a lesser-known part of the Declaration first. I want to point out the paragraph in the Declaration that precedes what we know as the preamble. This paragraph is the introduction. This states why they believe what follows is necessary and proper. This is really nothing more than the birth of American political spin. It's flowery language used to make the act of sedition seem noble. The second paragraph is where the good stuff starts. We were all taught the beginning of the second paragraph in school, but I'm willing to bet some of us could use a little refresher. It reads, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the government. 
that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Our founders chose these words carefully, so why don't we examine each phrase one at a time. It begins, we hold these truths to be self-evident. But what are those truths, and what do they mean to Americans today? Political elites want you to believe the answer is nothing. I disagree. The founders listed seven truths in this hallowed document, each one a promise to Americans, past, present, and future. The first truth is, all men are created equal. This one is simple and obvious. Unfortunately, our founders were decidedly products of their time. They didn't quite understand the definition of all, or that women were people too. Thankfully, over the last 246 years, we have addressed this oversight. We finally made all mean all, with the 13th, 15th, and 19th Amendments to the Constitution. The 13th freed the slaves, the 15th guaranteed the right to vote to all men, regardless of race, and the 19th finally gave all the right to vote regardless of sex. I must admit that it is a little disappointing that it took 144 years and three amendments to get there. Unfortunately, we are still far from living up to these ideals. People of color, women, and the poor are often treated like second-class citizens. In the United States, Native Americans make on average 77 cents to white Americans $1. African Americans and Hispanics make even less. Women are having basic rights taken away all around the country. Let me say that again. Women, and only women, have now lost their right to bodily autonomy in the United States. We have made it clear that women are still not considered part of all. A nation based on equality cannot bestow lesser rights on anyone. That's not equality, that's superiority. And the poor. Sadly, the poor can't catch a break, especially if they are a person of color. In states that require photo ID to vote, often they can't afford to. When it comes to making a difference in politics, it's almost impossible. Lobbying is a wealthy American's game. Running for office costs millions. The barriers to office are often insurmountable. How many excellent public servants are we missing out on, all because they can't afford to run for office? The Declaration was our Founders' first commitment to the future American people. Whether they meant to or not, they told the citizens of the colonies that in this new nation, everyone will be equal. They made a promise that this is the government you will enjoy once the British are defeated. This was as much a recruitment poster for colonial support as it was a notice to the British. They needed a better form of government than any known at the time to gain the people's support for independence. The next section states that the people are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. This phrase is also straightforward. Every American, no matter where we were born, no matter our ethnic background, no matter our financial situation, we are all born with unalienable rights solely because we exist. Most of us understand the words in this phrase. Nonetheless, the importance of unalienable cannot be understated. This asserts that the rights that follow cannot be taken away. More importantly, they cannot be given away, not through war, not through contract, 
not through legislation. The other thing I want to point out from this truth is the reference to our Creator. Notice the word isn't God. This is because of the freedom of religion espoused by our founders. Our founders ensured that no religion, or lack of religion, was singled out by this statement. This is how important they believed our right to practice or not practice religion was. There is another interesting aspect to this truth. It doesn't say all Americans are endowed with these rights. It says all are. This is the Founders' statement on global human rights, a bold statement from an infant nation that wasn't even a blip on the global stage yet. It says everyone, everywhere, are endowed with these rights. They follow this with words and actions declaring this was the hill they were willing to die on. As we move to the next clause, we are told three of what they consider our most important rights. Note that it says among these and not only these. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The word life alone would be simple to define. However, listing it with the other two, and in the context of government, makes the word much more powerful. At its base, life simply means that every American is entitled to live their life as they choose. Including it here is a promise by our forefathers. It is a promise that the government they create will ensure our right to life. They will do this through legislation, defense, and enforcement when necessary. In other words, the government enters a pact with its citizens. It agrees to protect and defend our lives through any necessary means. Liberty is one of the least understood words in our founding documents. It is a promise that the government will make no laws infringing on our freedom to live the life we choose. This does not mean that our freedoms can never be restricted. Martial law has been deemed appropriate during times of emergency. Sometimes lesser measures are also appropriate. Liberty is your right to live as you wish, so long as you do not infringe on other Americans' right to do the same. When one American infringes on another American's liberty, the government must act. The government's role is to make laws to restrict or punish this infringement. Liberty says that we are free, but only as far as it doesn't impede another American's right to their own liberty. The pursuit of happiness is another hard-to-grasp concept. What exactly does the pursuit of happiness mean? The word pursuit implies that it will involve a chase, a hunt, a search. Happiness is, of course, subjective. What makes me happy won't be the same thing that makes you happy. Our personal liberties determine what will make us happy. It is the role of our government to ensure we have the tools necessary to search for that happiness. This doesn't mean it is our government's responsibility to provide us that happiness. What it does mean is that based on the rights to life and liberty, the government ensures basic needs are met. In other words, every American should begin on the same footing in their own pursuit of happiness. You can think of this line in the preamble as a greater than statement. At the top is all Americans' right to life. This right to life is more important than any one American's personal liberties. You are free to murder someone, you are not free from the consequences of that action. Both life and liberty are more important than any American's right to happiness. Your neighbor's car may make you happy. You are free to look at it all you want. But once you trespass to see it better, 
or steal it, you will face the consequences. Whether the consequences are personal or financial is irrelevant. The next section tells us that the government will ensure the above rights and where the power to do so comes from. To secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. This is arguably the most important assurance we get from our founding fathers. This was their promise to the colonists afraid of a monarch with absolute power. This pledge is a reminder that our government will be by the people and for the people. This was a guarantee that nothing would ever wield more power than the people. This is one of the most important rights bestowed upon the American people. Sadly, it is also one that we are all too willing to give up. This declares that our government only has power because we the people allow them to wield it. It should only ever be the people who determine who govern. Not money, not corporations, not politicians, the people. This truth is a reminder that the people are the power in this nation. Never let politics distract you from this. The moment we forget that power or stop acting on it is the moment we lose our republic. The next segment lets us know that if we aren't happy with our government at any time, that it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it. This statement was unheard of at the time. The people are allowed to alter or abolish their government when they feel it necessary? As Vizzini would say, inconceivable. Too many people want to think of this in the most extreme way possible, abolish. That's like blowing up a car because it got a flat after driving through a field of glass and nails. What we should be doing is replacing the driver. We are provided an opportunity to alter our government every two to four years. Our government is completely within our control, but we only have that control if we choose to exercise it. If we don't like our government, we must elect new politicians. In our elections, over 90% of incumbents are re-elected. We need to truly alter our government before we try to abolish it. There is a reason alter is the first option while abolishing is the last. The people are the supreme power in this nation, but we must understand that power and make a choice to exert it. The last part I want to hit on isn't a specific right, but is related to the altering of government. I am referring to the line in the preamble that states, organizing its power in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. It is the founders' expectations that the people alter the government. They expect us to do this to provide for our safety and happiness. Here, happiness is highlighted again. This shows how important the pursuit of happiness was to our founding fathers. When you consider historical context, the reason is obvious. The New World began as a second chance for many. America was a place where the poor and oppressed of Europe went to find their happiness. Many at the time saw America as a way to rise out of poverty. It was a place that they could practice the religion they chose without condemnation. America was a place they hoped a better future await. A quote by George Washington feels very appropriate here. The United States came into existence as a nation, and if their citizens should not be completely free and happy, the fault will be entirely their own. The rest of the preamble paragraph justifies separation from the British Empire based on the rights I've highlighted. Then continues the political spin and trolling. 
The next section is a list of 27 grievances that proved their point. I say trolling and prove sarcastically because these grievances were mostly untrue. At least they were before the war broke out. Most were little more than political spin by an early spin master, Thomas Jefferson. The final paragraph states that the 13 colonies were united. To put it in internet terms, Britain sucks and the only way forward is independence. Change my mind. From here, we can't just move on to the Constitution. We must follow the stepping stones. I don't want to spend much time on it, but I must at least acknowledge the Articles of Confederation. Specifically, we need to discuss its failings and why it was replaced. This was our governing document before the Constitution. A group of men began working on this the day after the Committee of Five began working on the Declaration. Unfortunately for them, the only founder widely remembered from this group is Samuel Adams. Sadly, he is better known as a beer than for his contribution to American democracy. The Articles of Confederation were a weak establishment of government. Most things necessary to the smooth running of a national administration were missing. There are three I want to highlight. The inability to tax states, the inability to enforce laws, and the inability to raise a military force. Why would these be problematic, you ask? With no ability to raise money, a government can't pay its employees. This also means no soldiers or sailors to protect the nation's interests. With no income, they can't pay off the debts of the revolution. With no ability to enforce the laws they pass, the states will only follow their own interests. When that happens, competing interests set in. This was the biggest problem that our early government had. The states remained sovereign. They were not beholden to the national government. Like two gas stations on opposite corners, they were going to compete for customers. When one state cut off British imports, another state gave them favored status to make more money. All states were susceptible to meddling from foreign nations. All these obstacles left this untried nation impotent. With no cohesive and overarching connection, the United States could not succeed. The first experiment in American democracy was unsuccessful. Simply put, the Articles of Confederation were a failure. They were a failure because the national government only had an appearance of power. They were a failure because we could not tax our citizens to keep the lights on. They were a failure because they couldn't provide for the common defense. Fortunately, our founders realized that the United States was worth a second chance. They saw a need for a stronger federal government that could compel states to follow laws. They saw a need for the ability to raise revenue from the wealth of its citizens. They saw a need for a standing army to defend our nation from enemies, both foreign and domestic. They understood the frailty of our nation. Our founders knew we needed to bolster our government. So a group of men met in Philadelphia in 1787 to figure out how to give our fledgling nation a second chance. The path to our modern government was set in motion. Understanding the mistakes of the Articles, our founders set out to form a more perfect union. Today I highlighted our nation's thesis statement and its first attempt to prove it. The United States is appropriately referred to as an experiment in self-government. We often say this, but don't consider the importance of what it means. All experiments rely on the attention to detail of the scientists involved. To this day, this experiment continues. The people we choose to shepherd it can be part of its success or its ultimate demise. 
we either live up to the nation our founders envisioned, or we are doomed to lose it. You can call the Declaration of Independence nothing more than a sales pitch if you want, but it was, oh, so much more. This was a declaration that this nation would not be like all the others. This was a declaration that all who lived here were equal. This was the declaration that the power of this nation would rest with the people. That was the nation they promised. As you will see as we continue, that was the nation they wrote into existence. That is the nation that men and women have fought and died to protect. It is our responsibility to honor those promises. It is our responsibility to honor the Constitution. It is our responsibility, no, it is our debt to honor those who fight and die to defend it. Above all, it is our responsibility to ensure our politicians live up to that declaration. This is the People's Republic. We must stop letting politicians destroy our nation. We must protect the fragile democracy we all enjoy. We must respect the sacrifices of those who have fought to defend it. We the people are the power. Thank you for joining me for episode two of We Don't Talk About P-Word. You can subscribe to my podcast at www.talkpword.com. You can also find me on Facebook and Twitter. Any questions or comments, you can direct to talkpword at gmail.com. I hope you'll join me next week as we continue to explore American values by examining the Constitution. Until next time, qui custodia ipsos custodes, populus facere.